The New Testament reading for today is Luke 2, 21 through 35. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, quote, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, again, quote, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and a sign that is opposed, and a, sword will, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The word of the Lord. One ancient hope, it's good to be with you this morning on this Sunday after Christmas as we continue to celebrate Christ's birth. Christ Advent. And of course, this is a promise that we find throughout all of the scriptures. And it's the promise of the scripture that calls, that collects, that creates and crafts us as a church. So before we turn to this text together, let us come together before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its promise. And we thank you that this promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, whose birth and life we continue to celebrate. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So the great writer and and former Iowa City resident, Flannery O'Connor, pins the following when reflecting on her Christian faith. This is what she writes, quote, It's hard to believe always but more so in the world we now live in. There are some of us who have to pay for our faith every step of the way and who have to work out dramatically what it would be like without it and if being without it would ultimately be possible or not. End quote. O'Connor is saying that there's something about the modern world that keeps us from believing the way that we believed before. She's, she's not naive. She knows that sinful, fallen humans are sinful, fallen humans. We're no better or worse than those who came before us. We have the same potentials and proclivities, the same talents and terrors, the same capacities and corruptions. However, there's something about the modern world that challenges our belief in a manner not experienced in earlier ages. And so we can all join O'Connor's voice at this present moment. With respect to Christianity, we all, in O'Connor's words, have to work out dramatically what it would be like without it 
and if being without it would ultimately be possible or not. Why is this? What makes belief harder? Well, I think much of it comes down to distraction, to avoiding realities that for so long were always right in front of us all of the time. And what is it that we seek to avoid? What is it that we've developed a keen ability to again and again ignore and overlook? Well, I I remember uh, about a year ago listening to a lecture on the life of the uh, ancient African bishop uh, Augustine. And uh, the the professor was making the point that during the, the life of Augustine, somebody met death and corruption and decay everywhere. There was no refrigeration, so meat was constantly in a state of decay. There was no sanitation, so refuse littered the street, and it would sting your nostrils at every turn. There was no anesthesia as we now know it, so any medical procedure could come with excruciating pain. And the specter of death was everywhere. Childbirth was often deadly. Traveling from city to city, especially as the Roman Empire was on the verge of collapse, could be deadly. Even a small infected cut without the advent of antibiotics could be deadly. And so life in the day of Augustine was full of corruption, it was full of decay, it was full of death. Again, he met death at each and every turn. And of course, death is still around and it still exists in the same degree. All of us die, no more, no less, but we're better at hiding it than we used to be. I once heard that the death is the only remaining taboo in our society, the one topic that's not proper for polite conversation. And to be sure, it's not an easy reality. It's a hard, hard one. There's nothing like the pain that comes with grieving the loss of a loved one. It's a heavy, heavy, heavy burden. It's a deep, deep, deep pain. But exempting the glorious return of Christ, all of us will die. All of us will either watch everyone we love die or they will watch us do so. But all the same, it's not something that we talk about. It's not something that we think about. And we're good at this kind of thing. We're, we're good at this kind of distraction and ignoring hard truths. We have our eyes glued to our, our phones. We have our attention captivated by hours and hours of streaming content. We, we fill our ears with music and, and podcasts. And we're also good at telling ourselves lies, especially collectively as a society. For instance, did you know that, that much, and maybe even most, of the plastic in recycling bins never actually ends up in recycling? Um, there was a 2020 news article by NPR. It says the following, quote, Here's the basic problem. All used plastic can be turned into new things, but picking it up, sorting it out, and melting it down is expensive. Plastic also degrades each time it's reused. 
meaning it can't be reused more than once or twice. On the other hand, new plastic is cheap, it's made from oil and gas, and it's almost always less expensive and of better quality just to start fresh." End quote. Yet companies tell us and we tell ourselves our consumption is not a problem as long as we recycle. We lie to ourselves and we ignore the, high tr the hard truth of where our recycling actually goes. And we do the same with, with death. We don't think about it. We focus on living in the moment. We buy products that claim to keep us young and we try to keep death quarantined to hospitals and out of our regular and everyday routines. And so when we think about that, I don't mean to be crass, but we consume and consume with no thoughts of filling up landfills, and we live and live with no thoughts of filling up graveyards. We spend time cleaning out our plastic bottles and perhaps even peeling off their labels with no guarantee that they will actually be recycled. We spend time trying to keep ourselves young with every guarantee in the world that our body will fade, decay, undergo corruption, and die. Of course, it's good to be healthy. Medicine is a good gift to humanity, but we can't fall into the delusion of thinking that death will never come. And it's the question of death that forces us to ask O'Connor's question. What would it be like without Christianity, and is being without it ultimately possible or not? It's death. It's death that makes us ask that question. If death ends everything, if each day brings us closer to death than the last, if at a certain point each day, physically speaking, will be worse than the day before, if all this is true, then can we live without Christianity? Can we live in a world where everything ends in death? And this might seem kind of a strange, overly somber way to begin this passage but actually, the issue of death encompasses this entire account of Jesus at the temple. Seeing Jesus, Simeon exclaims, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And as we are told earlier in the account, it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so Simeon was told that he, like all of us, would die, but he was told that something would happen before he died. He would see the Lord's Christ. He would see the promised one. He would see the Messiah of Israel. The one who was promised so long ago would come in Simeon's lifetime, and Simeon himself would see him. And how does Simeon describe this waiting? Well, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. The promised one, the one who will bring the consolation of Israel, is this child, the baby now presented to Simeon in the temple. But how is it that we're supposed to understand this notion of consolation here? What is the text actually getting at? Well, there's a larger temple backdrop that frames this scene. We have a number of rituals at play here. In verse 21, we find that Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day, and before this sermon, we looked at Leviticus 12, and if we connect this with the Leviticus 12 reading, we know that the circumcision on the eighth day connects, it corresponds to the seven days of uncleanness, of ritual impurity that would accompany a mother on the birth of a male child. 
And we also find that it's not until the time of purification that Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple. And Leviticus 12 tells us the new mother cannot come into the sanctuary of the temple until 33 days after the birth. 33 days of ritual impurity persist. And for that time, Mary cannot enter the temple. But now that time has passed, and now she presents her child to the priest at the temple, and we're told when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And so they waited three days, and now they're ready to complete the purification ritual, one that involves the sacrifice of two birds. But we have to go back further still. What what is going on here? What is ritual impurity? And, and why do we need purification? Well, this is a, a big topic, but I, but I want to trace a few key contours. And, and here I'm going to follow the work of Jewish scholar Jacob Milgram and his, his seminal work on, on Leviticus. And a first question to ask is, well, what is not ritual impurity? What is it not? Well, to begin with, it's not moral impurity and it's not sin. Mary's not sinning or she's not in any immoral state while she waited 33 days. So then what is happening? Well, to begin with, Milgram points out that a great many of the law codes that we find in Leviticus, they have to do with with food prohibitions. And Milgram says this produced a threefold effect in the people of Israel. One, there was a wide limiting of what animals could be eaten. Two, of the animals that could be eaten, they would be killed in the most humane way. And three, there is a recognition that all of these animals were gifts and provisions from God. And taken together, Milgram makes the point that what is being taught by these food prohibitions is a, quote, reverence for life. A reverence for life. And in that curriculum, it makes complete sense if humans are to be the steward of all creation. And toward that end, Milgram understands life, life itself as an important organizing principle in understanding the law codes of Leviticus. But on the other side, Milgram identifies the common denominator of ritual impurities as death. Death. Again, in Leviticus 12, we find that childbirth makes a woman ritually impure or unclean. In the same way, we find in Leviticus 13 through 14, we find that leprosy makes one ritually impure. And in Leviticus 15, we find that genital discharges make a man unclean. And on this score, Milgram contends that both male and female bodily discharges represent in the Levitical codes, the loss of and the death of the forces of life. Even more, as Old Testament scholar Roy Gain points out, physical rituals, sorry, quote, physical rituals, sorry, physical, sorry, let me start over. Quote, physical ritual impurities, it's a mouthful, arise from an existing state of mortality, which according to Genesis 3 has burdened the human race as a consequence of the moral fault of disobedience committed by Adam and Eve. And so these impurities point us back to what ushered human death into the world, the rebellion of Adam and Eve against our good and gracious God. And in this state of rebellion, we exist in a state of death and mortality. 
And again, death itself is a punishment for sin. However, as Old Testament scholar L. Michael Morales contends, these these purification rituals, like, like the very ones that Mary and Joseph are partaking of in the temple, they're understood as a kind of movement from death towards life. Their symbolic use of blood and water represents the achieving, the attaining of life rather than the loss of it. And Morales connects this movement directly with the law of God. Again, if we think of the way that the law of God is described, it's precisely in choosing death or life. As Deuteronomy 30 says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Love the Lord your God, obeying his voice and clinging to him, for he himself is your life and your length of days. And we also need to add Numbers 19.11. It tells us that whoever touches a dead body is also unclean or ritually impure for seven days. And of course, we all die. And when we pass, others will bury us and, and, and we pray, hope, treat our bodies with dignity and respect. But in doing so, they will become ritually impure because they are handling death itself. And again, death is exactly what is represented, represented in ritual impurities. So then, we all die. We all suffer mortality and its effects. This is not the way it's supposed to be, but we don't sin when we die. We don't sin as, body, as our body bleeds or discharges or as our body offers its very last breath. Again, ritual impurity is not sin. It comes with living our human life in a world of death. And so what does all this mean? Well, we might say the people of Israel are called to enact liturgies of life. Liturgies of life. And in speaking of a liturgy, I want to use the definition offered by philosopher James K.A. Smith. He speaks of liturgies as, quote, practices and rituals that affectively and viscerally train our desires, end quote. And so accordingly, to say that the people of Israel practiced liturgies of life is to say that they practiced rituals that taught them to love and revere life and to hate and to fight against death. This is what Mary learned waiting 33 days before she could come to the temple, and this is what Simeon learned each time he himself had to stay away from the temple because of ritual impurities. Again, ritual impurities affect us all, but death cannot come into the temple. This is the place of God himself, who is life. God who is our very life. And this was a serious prohibition. And it reminds us we cannot approach God in an improper way. To do so is a serious violation against him. But this also means that these liturgies can only do so much. New Testament scholar Matthew Thiessen has written a great book about these limitations. It's called Jesus and the Forces of Death. And he makes the point that while these rituals and practices, they help limit and remove the effects of ritual impurity, they do not destroy its cause. He says, quote, They did not heal abnormal genital discharges, cure leprosy, or turn corpses back into living beings. Proper maintenance, not transformation, of the current conditions of the world was their sole divinely ordained goal. End quote. 
And so Thiessen is saying that the law codes of Leviticus, they were primarily defensive. They were not addressing the sources of these impurities, but merely their effects. And through the liturgies of life that God gave his people, human death, mortality, and corruption were, were dealt with, but they were not destroyed. People had learned to love and revere life, but they still succumbed to death. But the story does not end here, because God promises that this is not always how it will be. These sin on the score references Isaiah 25, 6-8, which is one of the most beautiful passages of all the Old Testament. In this passage, Isaiah says the following, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all peoples, Faces and the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. One day, God promises that he will swallow up death forever. He will swallow up that dark covering that's cast over all peoples and nations. That one day, God will make human mortality no more, and one day, he will not just deal with the effects of ritual impurity, but its very source and cause. He'll destroy death itself. And this is the background of these ritual impurities of human death that we find in this passage wherein Jesus is presented at the temple. Again, according to the purification codes, Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day. The family waits 33 days before bringing him, and they sacrifice an animal for the purpose of purification. And the sacrifice of this animal, by the sacrifice, the mother is cleansed from the flow of blood. And Jesus' family is not a wealthy family. They offer two birds instead of a lamb for this purpose. And through the death of the animal, Mary is cleansed of her ritual impurity that comes from death. But Mary is not cleansed from death itself. But remember, Simeon is waiting for something. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for God to address the problem that causes all of these impurities. He's waiting for God to address what necessitates this whole system in the first place. Simeon is waiting for God to swallow up death. And why is it important for, for Simeon to be able to depart, to, to, to die in peace? Because how can he face death when the problem of death has not been addressed. The Levitical law codes can undo these effects, but they cannot undo death itself. Until death is destroyed, until it's swallowed, death has the last word. And if Simeon departs to the finality of death, Simeon does not depart in peace. And it is in this light that we understand Simeon's words about this child. In verses 30 through 32, Simeon exclaims, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory to your people, Israel. What is this salvation? Well, it's the swallowing up 
of death. Because of this one, because of this child who he now sees at the temple, Simeon can now depart. Simeon can now die in peace. He knows that death does not have the last word. And how does he know it? How, how is it that this child will defeat death? How will he change the system so not just the effects of ritual impurity, but their cause, death itself, will be destroyed? How will this happen? Well, the child will grow, and the child will defeat death. Christ will heal a woman who discharged blood for 12 years. Christ will touch lepers, and he will heal them. Christ will even raise the dead and bring them back to life. What we find here is a kind of undoing of all of those ritual impurities that we find in Leviticus 12 through 15, all of the impurities that are there at the forefront of this temple account. Even more, Christ will come and he'll take the punishment of our own sins. Christ died on the cross because human death is ultimately a punishment for human sin, but not his sin. He was sinless, but for our sin. And he will take the punishment that we deserve, but he will not be undone by it. Christ did not stay dead. As Peter tells a crowd at Pentecost, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death could not hold Christ. Christ broke death. Christ destroyed death. The resurrection of Christ is the death of death. And so Christ rose again. But he did so in a special way. If we think about the life of Christ, he brought many back from the dead. But strictly speaking, they were not resurrected. When Christ raised Lazarus, Lazarus was raised to die again. But not so Christ. Christ rose never to die again, not to suffer any effects of death or mortality or corruption or decay and because Christ has done this, this is the resurrection that awaits us. Christ's present is our future. And so Simeon can depart in peace. He can die knowing that one day God will raise him up never to die again. Simeon can die with the full and complete hope of the resurrection. Yet, why is this child who is called the consolation of Israel also called a light of revelation to all the nations? How is it that God's salvation in Christ has been prepared in the presence of all peoples? What's going on here? Why this universal scope? Well, it's true that the people of Israel alone had the liturgies to, to limit and remove the ritual impurities caused by death. But all peoples everywhere in all times face the problem of death. Again, Isaiah calls it a veil that has covered all peoples in all nations. And Christ is the Savior of all peoples because Christ has destroyed, he's undone the problem that affronts all people. Christ rips the dark veil that lays over all of us. 
Christ does not address a particular problem of one people, but rather the universal human problem of death. And so all along, we find that these purity codes were pointing to the person and work of this child, Jesus Christ. And now the purity codes themselves have been fulfilled because Christ has undone death. And the consolation that these laws constantly pointed to, the consolation for which Simeon has hoped, has arrived. But if Christ, if in Christ, one day, we will rise never to die again, that helps us go back from where we started, but in a new way. Again, what does it mean to live in light of our death, in light of that truth that our culture has become so good at distracting ourselves from? God still calls us to liturgies of life. Again, we defined a liturgy following James K. Smith as practices and rituals that affectively and viscerally train our desires. And so we still are meant to partake of liturgies of life. And just like the purity codes, they are meant to teach us a love, a reverence, a longing for life, and a hate, and a fighting against death. And as Smith points out, liturgies, if we have eyes to see, confront us everywhere. Smith gives the example of going to a shopping mall, and he writes the following about our experience at a shopping mall. Quote, the mall is a religious site not because it's theological, but because it's liturgical. Its spiritual significance and threat isn't found in its ideas or its messages, but in the rituals. The mall doesn't care what you think, but is very much interested in what you love." End quote. Smith is warning us that at every corner we're met with liturgies that teach us to love something other than God, than the life that God others offers, something other than life itself. Every trip to the store, every athletic event, every commercial, every movie, every song, literally everything we encounter is forming us. Everything teaches us to love and to hate. And we find liturgies everywhere. And so it's not just a church term, it's, it's a universal human term. Recall the beginning of the sermon and that focus that we put upon distraction. And distraction also plays a key role here. We give ourselves over and over again to liturgies of distraction that make us ignore the big purposes of life and death. Much of this has to do with our consumerism. As Smith writes, quote, to shop is to seek and to find. We come with a sense of need given our failure to measure up to its iconic ideals, and the mall promises something to address that, end quote. And of course, it might be timelier here to replace the mall with Amazon, but the dynamic remains the same. Um, Our lists, our liturgies of consumerism, they form us, making our desires and our questions much too small. They distract us from our biggest problems, and we live in too small of a world. Our main problem is not what we will wear, what we will watch, what diet we will consume, the programs that we give our kids to. These are not insignificant questions. These can be very, very important questions in our life. I don't mean to take these lightly. But this text points us to our ultimate needs. As Simeon knows, our main problem is that we're all going to die. We've all been subjected to death and mortality. And the question is, if we, like Simeon, will be able to depart in P. 
peace. We'll either live forever with Christ or we will be lost forever away from God, the very source of life. If you are in Christ, if you are not in Christ, the worst is always yet to come. And even if you don't believe in Christ, admit that this is still what you believe. What awaits you is death, and each day brings you closer to it than the last. Either the future is life or it is death. We should all, if we're honest with ourselves, be able to affirm this. However, if you are in Christ, a fuller and fuller life is always yet to come. The 18th century American theologian Jonathan Edwards puts this in quite stark terms. Quote, This world is all the hell that ever a true Christian is to endure, and it is all the heaven that unbelievers shall ever enjoy. End quote. This truth pushes us to participate in liturgies of life. Our main problem is death, but it has been defeated. And so all of our life should be one that teaches and communicates and imparts reverence and love for life. And all the liturgies in which we participate, are we working to preserve, to love, to revere life, just as did those purity codes of old? Christ is the very force of life in God's world. And so we should be a people of life to our community. Liturgies of life call us to preserve, to love, and to revere life in all forms. We're called to be life to our family, to be life to this church, to be life to our neighbors and our community, to be life to the marginalized and the vulnerable, to be life to the disadvantaged, to be life to those who need accountability, which is all of us in some way, shape, or form to be life to our ecological environment. And at every corner, we're called to embrace liturgies of life. These can be very simple things, inviting someone new to your dinner table, gardening, lamenting with those who suffer, sitting quietly in your room without distractions, reverently reflecting upon and praying to your God singing with your family around the table songs of praise, free from headphones and earphones that work to separate us from each other, fostering relationships in a world of social vengeance, learning to really listen with charity to others, and continually giving ourselves to confession and repentance and forgiveness. Or, in a world of shallow cynicism, learning to more deeply lament than the surrounding culture, but also learning to live more joyfully than it as we look hard at both the deep tragedies of human life and the joy for which we can hope. These are the liturgies of life that just like the purity codes of old teach us to love life and to hate death. And life is why Christ died and rose again, and if you have faith in him, you have received this promise of life. Death is not the last word. Christ's, lo Christ's life is more powerful than death. Receive him in faith and depart this place in peace. 
knowing that in Christ we've received the salvation of the Lord and the death of death. And so do something that our culture cannot bear to do. Look straight at the hard realities of life, of this life, life in a fallen world, and at the many ways that death has corrupted this world, but also know that death in Christ has been defeated. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for defeating death in Christ. We thank you that because of Christ, when we trust in him, when we have faith in him, we not only can depart this building in peace, but when it's our time, we can depart this life in peace, looking forward to a resurrected life without any death, corruption, or decay. It's in Christ's mighty and gracious name we pray. Amen.